it is lovely to be with all of you after a long summer away. It is just so delightful to see all your faces, and I haven't had a chance to say that yet. Um, so for the kids that are here, this morning we're going to be talking about God's commandments and how they're meant for our flourishing, but how sometimes they're really hard to figure out exactly what God wants us to do. So I want you who are here among us to think about this question. We're going to be talking about God's commandment, the fifth commandment, for a little bit, which says, honor your father and mother. What does that mean? I'm just curious. If you were to write down a list or draw a picture of what honor your father and mother means, what would that mean? What would you do in order to honor your father and mother? And if you have brothers and sisters, I'd be curious after the service, if you compared your pictures, would you draw the same thing? Right? So what does honor your father and mother mean? And does it mean the same thing to everyone? I'm just curious. So we're going to talk a little bit about how it is that we understand God's commandments and how we figure out how they apply to our lives. And so one of those is honor your father and mother. So I want you to take some time this morning and maybe ask your parents what they think too. They have parents. And they probably have expectations for what it means for you to honor them. And so maybe just have a little conversation with your family about what it means to honor your father and mother and how you think about what that means. So uh, as I alluded to, I had a chance this summer to spend a long time away. I'm really grateful. It was really good for me and my family. And uh, during my time away, I had a chance to finally begin chipping away at that stack of books and movies that I've had while I was in seminary that I just have like been piling up. A lot of it's like pop culture stuff that I just feel like people reference movies or books and I don't know what they're talking about. And so I've been trying to kind of become a little more culturally literate this summer. And so I've been uh, working through my stack little by little. And um, one of the movies, or it's actually a documentary that I read or that I watched this summer was a, a friend of mine or some friends of mine had recommended to me, which is a documentary called I Kissed, I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Anyone seen this? Um, in it, this guy, Josh Harris, who some of you might know, he wrote this book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye in the year 1997. So I was at the tail end of high school. Um, but he wrote this book when he was 21 years old, right? And it was his sort of like vision of what dating and marriage should look like. And he got married shortly after he wrote this book. But in this book, he essentially suggests that courtship is the way to get married, right? So if you're on the path to marriage, courtship is the biblical way to do it. So if you look at the Old Testament writings on marriage and the New Testament writings on marriage, the way to implement those is courtship. And in it, he also goes one step further and he says that any form of physical intimacy at all violates the sacredness of marriage. And the reason I picked this movie up is because I wasn't directly impacted by this, but a lot of um, a lot of people that I grew up with, this was a book that was handed to them by youth group leaders. And so it was really influential in the circles that I grew up in. And I really wanted to understand um, the impact that this work has had, and really the purity culture in general, what impact that that's had on people of my generation and the way they think about marriage and singleness and just human flourishing, right? 
And so when I was growing up, I can remember that there was a lot of kids in my youth group that had gotten this book from family members, from other youth leaders, from pastors, and they were reading through it, and they were wearing purity rings as a sign of their commitment to remain pure until they were married. They signed, there was a huge movement down on Capitol Hill where there was a true love waits where people signed cards and committed to waiting um, until they were married, committing to be sexually pure until they were married. And thinking back, what this created was a sort of unspoken message in the air that was sort of all around me growing up, that if we remained sexually pure, then we would have a good relationship with God, right? So the order of things was, if you are pure, then God will accept you. And to boot, you'll attract a Christian spouse, right? So these are the order of things, right? So God accepts your purity, and in response, he gives you a great spouse. And for so many people that I grew up with, the means eclipsed the ends, right? If the goal of our striving is purity of heart, so that we might see God, right? That is the goal of all of our striving, is to see and experience union and the beauty of flourishing in the sight of God. But instead, the end became marriage, right? That was the, that was the gold seal, the rubber stamp that I had, um, that I was right with God, right? But as deeply flawed, as I think most of us sitting here on the face of it, recognize that this is. And as damaging as the purity movement has been for a lot of people, the one thing that struck me in this documentary, so it's the author going back and interviewing people about the impact that his book that he wrote when he was 21 has had upon them. The one thing that struck me walking away from watching this documentary was just how well-intentioned he was right? He truly believed that he was reading scripture well, and that he was truly pushing back a culture against a culture that said, commitments not necessary, sex can just be casual. And this was his honest response to wrestle with God's commands around marriage and sex. And it was his honest understanding and attempt to change the discourse and to help his fellow believers, right? He knew that the commands of God are intended for our flourishing, and he was just trying to work out what that meant for Christians today. And yet, as you watch this documentary, the thing that you realize is just how dangerous it can be when we suggest that our own practices have the same weight as God's commands, right? So courtship became on par with sexual purity within marriage, right? So he put those two, and so courtship was necessary in order to pursue marriage. And so the thing that became really dangerous about that is that if you put your practices, which are derived from scripture, on par with scripture itself, then you're not given any space to reevaluate or modify your practices, or even to abandon them, right? To even go back and say, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, this just doesn't seem to be working out the way that I thought it would, right? So it just leaves you very little room to maneuver. And a lot of times what happens is that we're trying honestly to work out gaps in scripture. We're trying to figure out where scripture is silent. What does it mean? 
So when, for instance, there's been centuries of conversations in the church about what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? You'll find people who think that means you can't play games, you know, with your family out in the yard. You'll find people who say, it means I can have a great meal out at a restaurant with my friends. You'll have people who say, you can't go to have a restaurant meal because you're causing the workers to not be able to have their Sabbath, right? So even on something like that, what, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy works its way out in a whole host of different ways. And it's just really hard to take Old Testament commands and translate them centuries into the future and work out exactly what they mean. So this is a real honest struggle in the church. And today's gospel reading opens with the Pharisees questioning Jesus about why it is that his disciples don't follow the tradition that's been established among the elders of eating, of not eating with unwashed or defiled hands. Now, to give a little bit of context for this, ritual impurity was a significant concern of Jewish life by this time. And so in the Old Testament, New Testament books, what you see is these regulations governing how Israel was to be holy, right, in their daily life, in order that they might approach God in a state of ritual purity. These regulations are precautions to be taken so that you don't defile other people, but they're also outlining steps that you can take to bring yourself back into right relationship with God if you've experienced impurity, right? And that's all in sort of that you can rejoin the community and you can re-enter the public worship of God. But as the, we can see in the case of our modern-day public, modern-day purity movement, the Old Testament doesn't cover every circumstance, right? It doesn't cover every little moment of your day. It gives you broad guidelines, and then we need to work out what that means for you at your workplace or your interaction with your family. You have to work that out. We have to work that out. And so by the time of Jesus, when he's having this conversation with the Pharisees, what's arisen into the gap is the tradition of the elders. These are oral traditions that are meant to fill in those gaps, right? That are meant to take the Old Testament regulations around purity and meant to work out exactly what that means in every aspect of your life. And the Mishnah, which was where all these oral traditions were collected later, a few centuries after Jesus, they, when they're talking about these oral traditions, they describe them as a fence around the Torah, right? So what does it mean to be a fence? Well, it means that they uphold the law and they extend their implications into all of everyday life. But what happens when you get layers and layers of tradition that are a fence around the Torah, right? So you have the kernel in the middle and then you have all these layers of requirements on top of that. Well, what happens? is that over time you end up shifting the weight, right? So where does the weight fall? Tradition and our practices have a way of, of obscuring the kernel, right? Which is the law of God. We have this way of creating these layers of requirements what, about what it takes to fulfill the law. And actually we end up focusing on peripheral issues instead of core issues. And this is the heart of the disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees. So the tradition has extended the Old Testament ritual purity requirements and established these complex hierarchies. And these practices aren't necessarily directly rooted in scriptural warrant, right? They have, you can draw the line, but you can't say 
this is required by scripture, right? You can you can trace the line to how they got from a requirement to um, wash your hands for the priest and how that gets to the point where everyone's now required to wash their hands in order to cleanse themselves of defilement. But there's it's not an explicit command, right? And so um, what we see is that Jesus isn't concerned here, and he's not angry because the Pharisees are concerned about purity. He's not like, purity doesn't matter. Don't be concerned about that. Don't be concerned about the laws, right? Where does he come down is he is concerned that they're observing human traditions. So these attempts to understand the law and to work it out have actually blinded them. And what, have it, what has it blinded them to? Well, it's blinded them to the fact that they're actually, their traditions are causing them to reject God's commands or to undermine them. And they're also blind to their own undefiled their own defiled hearts from which are flowing all these ideas and actions that are evil, right? So they're blind to these two things. And so turning away from the question of hand washing, Jesus says, just to be really clear, I'm going to give you another example of where you've taken the law and you've thought that you are maintaining a fence around the law, but you're actually going a you're going pretty far off track. And that's his case of Corbin, which was taking the command to honor father and mother, but instead saying, I'm going to honor God by giving my possessions. I'm going to dedicate them to God. And what that meant is that that person could still have access to those possessions during their lifetime, but they could say to their parents, I can't help you because I've actually now dedicated these possessions to God. It would be sort of like me going to my tax accountant and being like, my parents have some really mounting healthcare bills. I don't really want to help them out. Can you help me create a shelter so I can still have access to my funds? And eventually I'll give them to the church, right? So that's a good thing. I'll give them to the church, but I'm not going to help my parents out with them right now. So I think we would immediately recognize the hypocrisy of that, right? You're using one command of honoring God to undermine the other command, which is to honor your parents. And in the case I sketched out earlier, it made me think how much our modern purity culture has actually served to undercut God's teachings on sex and marriage. And then that made me take one step further back and say, are there other church practices right, that maybe you grew up with or that you witness here or in the wider church? Are there other practices that risk putting our own traditions and our own attempts to understand scripture over and above the commands? Or places where we've said that this practice is necessary, but if you actually start unpacking it, it actually undermines the command that we're attempting to explain and follow so closely. As you're thinking about that, one of the things I want to remind you of is that even in this passage, Mark is alluding to a debate in the church that took a long time to work out. And that was the question of eating unclean foods. Or as the question is posed by, to Paul by the Corinthian church, are Christians permitted to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? So lest we think that these are easy questions to work out, lest we think that it is easy to figure out exactly what the commands of God mean, 
look at the early church and look how long it took them to work out the question of what it meant to be Gentile believers. You know, was it all right to eat food that had already been sacrificed to idols? I think when it comes to these hard questions of how scripture works out, we need to first bring to it a deep knowledge of scripture, right? So when Jesus is explaining to the Pharisees about how they have gone so far astray, he doesn't point just to the Ten Commandments, right? He pulls in the teachings from Isaiah. He has this broad knowledge of scripture and how it fits together in this beautiful picture to reveal God to us. And so I think, first of all, when we're wrestling with these questions of how to interpret scripture rightly, we have to know scripture. We have to be steeped in it. But also I think it really helps to have a deep understanding about how the church has wrestled with these questions in the past. I think one of the things that made me so sad listening to Josh Harris's attempt to work out the implications of his book was just how shallow his knowledge of the church was, right? He looked around his local church community and he thought that was enough to write a book on marriage and sex. He didn't turn to Christians in other parts of the world who are grappling with these same questions. He didn't turn to read what other Christians in the past had written about these questions. He thought it was enough to just look inward, just him and the Bible. But the truth is that we have so many more resources at our disposal for understanding how the commandments of God work out than just us and the Bible. And in fact, the Bible was never meant to be worked out by ourselves anyhow. And we acknowledge that every Sunday when we're here and when we meet for small groups like our first Corinthian groups to really wrestle with that book, right? We come together in places like this so that we can hear scripture and work out what it means bringing each of our diverse perspectives and backgrounds, our own histories, maybe our experiences in other Christian traditions. We bring all of that, all of that beauty to the table when we're working through what scripture means and how the commands of God are to be worked out. And I wanna say this, the other thing that struck me when I was watching this documentary is just how hard it is to question practices when they're deeply rooted in a community and when they're supported by authority figures in the church, right? It's really hard to question the content of a book when you're 16, when it's being given to you by your youth pastor or your parents. And that made me wonder where we have spaces in the church to bring our own questionings and wonderings and wrestlings. 
Where do we create spaces to be humble enough to have our deeply held practices questioned? Doesn't mean that we'll jettison them at the end of the day, but it does mean that we're gonna wrestle with them and be open to hearing other perspectives. And here's a question for you. Do you have places, do you, do each of you have places where you feel like you can ask these questions and wrestle openly? I want to close with Jesus's pointed remarks on our heart, which is how he closes the passage, which is a great way to make it stick with you, right? It's the last thing you read, is Jesus's remarks on our hearts. I'm gonna read from the message translation. So when he gets to the room just with his disciples, which in Mark is kind of code for, here's, here's the, I'm going to tell you what it really means, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to unpack that parable I just told. So the closest passage, Jesus is with his disciples in a room, and he says this in response to the question, what does it mean to say that the things that you consume don't defile you? Don't you see that what you swallow, what you eat, can't contaminate you? It doesn't enter into your heart, but it goes through your stomach, works its way out through your intestines, and it's finally flushed away. It's what comes out of you that pollutes you. And those are obscenities, lust, theft, murder, adultery, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, carousing, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness. All these things are what is, are vomited out of your heart. They're vomited out of your heart. And that is what pollutes you. I will note that sexual issues are embedded within a whole host of other things that I think we're really quick to gloss over. So I just want to point out that it's all a muddle of things that proceed out of us. But what Jesus is saying is that our external actions flow from our internal motives and desires. Right? So when we're working through scripture, what are our motivations? You know, is it the really great marriage that I'll be promised because I've remained pure, right? Or is my desire to see God, to know his holiness in my life, to be united with him more and more every day? Because without the presence of Christ within us, without his presence that renovates our hearts, any attempts that we make to maintain our physical purity are only going to mask, they're only going to paper over our impure hearts. And we're going to risk confusing our means in the end. We're going to substitute our pure bodies for our impure hearts and risk union with God. Our observances and practices should always lead us towards God and to the love of others. And if they ever do otherwise, if you ever find yourself questioning where a practice is leading you, then it's time to check your motivation and the practice itself. The challenge to us as Christians 
to the ones in whom the Spirit of God abides is to sort out just what difference the resurrection of Christ makes for our practices and how we're to remain loyal to the commandments of God. And so I pray that the Lord God would have mercy upon us all as we work towards purity of our hearts. Amen.